Good morning, everyone, and happy Father's Day to you dads. We're actually continuing on in our studies through Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, I do often preach a Father's Day message, and uh, I thought about that this time, and the more I looked at the passage, the more I thought, you know what? The Lord's Prayer, which is what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, um, the Lord's Prayer is a Father's Day message. In fact, in some circles, what we call the Lord's Prayer is called um, the Our Father Prayer. And also, if you think about it, there's nothing more important for fathers than to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, the kind of faith that expresses itself in praying the way that Christ, that Christ has taught his followers to pray. And so um, it's good for us fathers, fathers, it's good for all of us, not just to learn the Lord's prayer itself, but uh, to learn what's behind it, to learn what it means. It will equip us to be faithful followers of Christ and faithful Christian fathers. So here we are, Matthew chapter 6. Um, the Lord's Prayer is in verses 5 through 15. Um, there's, there's a lot here, as you notice in the back of your bulletin. Don't panic. Um, it's Father's Day for me too, and I also want to have a barbecue or something afterwards, so we won't be here all day long. We'll... Uh, make our way pretty briskly through the text. But uh, let, let's notice what our Lord has to say. So the theme here, it's the Lord's Prayer, but it's how Jesus wants us to pray. We're on the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching his followers the true meaning of the law, what it means to follow him as Lord and Savior. And uh, in the words of the Lord's Prayer, basically we have um, the Lord's instruction on how to pray as Christ followers. So Jesus wants us to pray in accordance with the Lord's prayer. And the first thing we notice leading up to the Lord's prayer itself in verses 5 through 8 is that Jesus wants us to pray with the right spirit. Notice verses 5 through 8. So Jesus said, And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So this is the same kind of theme that we saw in verses 1 through 4. Um, Jesus is admonishing his followers to not be like the hypocrites. And remember from last week that um, a hypocrite is someone who puts on an act. It's someone who pretends to be something that they're not. And it's uh, very much like verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And so, in verses 1 through 4, the hypocrites do their righteousness to be seen by other people. They give 
to be seen by other people. And now in uh, verse 5, they pray in order to be seen by people. That's their objective. Their objective is not to connect with God, to commune with God, to lay their burdens at Christ's feet. Their objective is uh, to be seen by others as they pray. And uh, what's wrong with that? Well, Jesus says at the end of verse 5, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So our reward as believers when we pray is more of God himself and answers to our prayers. But when someone prays hypocritically in order to be seen by others, then the fact that others see them pray, that is their reward and nothing else. No drawing near to God, nor uh, no fullness of fellowship with God, no answered prayers, and no future reward in heaven, but just what they were looking for in the first place, just people seeing them pray. That's their only reward. In contrast to that, in contrast to the prayers of hypocrites, Jesus commands us as his followers in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Really, this is a very important mark of genuine saving faith. When someone has a, uh, a true, authentic relationship with God so that when they're by themselves, they, they pray to God in secret. And they confess their sins, their hidden sins, the sins that no one else might be aware of. Their, their sins of thought, their sins of wrong intentions and motivations. In the secret place, they confess their secret sins. And that's what Jesus emphasizes here. But um, these secret prayers, these prayers to God in the secret place, doesn't mean that private prayers are the only legitimate prayers. Jesus is not teaching against all public prayers. Um, Ron has already led us in prayer this morning, and Reed lead, led us in prayer this morning. Are we supposed to think that Ron and Reed are both hypocrites because they, they led us in public prayer? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Because, for example, the Lord's Prayer itself was meant to be a public prayer. The, the wording, we'll, we'll get to this, but in verse 9, Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. It's, it's meant to be prayed corporately in the company of God's people. And 
The Old Testament and the New Testament both contain examples of public prayers. And the New Testament in particular contains instruction uh, on how to pray publicly. In fact, Jesus uh, quotes from the Old Testament and says, in God's behalf, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So all public prayer is not in view here that it's all forbidden. What Jesus is focusing on here is that even in our public prayers, we should pray as if it's us and God alone. Praying before an audience of one. Praying before the face of God. In public prayer, someone leads us and someone gives voice to the concerns that affect the whole congregation. But we should never pray like the hypocrites did in Jesus' day. We should never pray in order to impress people. And Jesus goes on to point out that the right spirit in prayer extends even to our choice of words. Notice verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so being long-winded in our prayers and repeating empty phrases comes from a heart that thinks that we can get God to do what we want him to do by basically overwhelming him with just the volume of our words. It's almost like treating God like an idol. And, and we gain power over God by our words, almost like an incantation. Empty phrases and heaping words upon themselves to gain control of God. That's not true prayer. It's not Christ-like prayer. When we pray to God, we acknowledge that he's sovereign, that he knows all things, including what we need before we ask him. And so all that's required of us is to ask sincerely, humbly, and simply, and then trust God with the result. That's the right spirit in prayer. Then Jesus goes on to tell us exactly how we should pray. He gives us a pattern for prayer in the words of the Lord's Prayer. And by the way, um, when verse 9 opens up and Jesus says, pray then like this, um, he's not necessarily saying pray in these exact words because he did, after all, uh, just warn us against empty phrases. And there are plenty of people who repeat the Lord's Prayer and really have no idea what they're saying. They, their, their heart really isn't in it, but they just repeat it as a religious rite. 
So that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's okay for sure to pray in the very words of the Lord's Prayer, just like it's, it's good and right to pray the very words of Scripture wherever we find them in the Bible. But Jesus does not say this is a uh, particular uh, formula for prayer. and You must pray in exactly these words. So this is a pattern for prayer. And you'll notice that as Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer, he reminds us to whom we pray. Our Father in heaven. And so as Christians, we don't pray into the air. We don't pray to the idols of unbelievers. We don't pray to saints. No, according to Jesus, we pray to our Father in heaven. This is an acknowledgement that um, God, in a general sense, is the Father of all of humanity. Like Paul said in Acts chapter 17, we are all his offspring. But, But in particular, this is a profession of faith from us that God has given us the right to be called the sons of God, the children of God, not because of anything that we deserve, but because of what Jesus has done for us. He's our father now. We're his adopted children. And as believers then, God is not some impersonal, distant deity but he is our loving, compassionate, interested father who rules and reigns from his throne of power and glory in heaven. Just like we saw from Psalm 103. And this father of ours loves to hear and answer the prayers of his children. So we, Jesus wants us to pray to our Heavenly Father. Then next in the Lord's Prayer, we begin to see specific prayer requests. So already we've seen that Jesus wants us to pray with the right spirit to the right person, our Father in Heaven, and now he teaches us how to pray for the right things. Beginning with, number three on your outline, that God would be regarded as holy. The beginning, uh, or the second part of verse nine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we talk about God being hallowed, we're talking about his holiness. The fact that God is separate from. He's he's other than um, any creature, all of his creation. He He is utterly unique. He's holy. And he's worshiped that way in heaven now. The prophet Isaiah got a glimpse into the throne room of God and he saw the the angels and heavenly creatures constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
The Apostle John had a similar vision in the book of Revelation. The, the holiness of God is central to who God is and how God relates with his creatures. But this is actually a prayer request. We're not just acknowledging God's holiness. We're not saying we, we worship you, God, because of your holiness, which is a legitimate thing to pray. But it's actually a request, a prayer request. Hallowed be your name. We're, we're, we're asking God that his name would be hallowed. To, to hallow God's name means to reverence and honor God's person, character, and glory. All that God is and all that God stands for. Another way to put it is to have a high view of God. For example, in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, his brother, The Lord said, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And we're called to live out in our daily lives this high view of God. To, to not just regard God as holy intellectually only or just in theory, but to do what God commands us. Be holy as I am holy. Doesn't that make sense if we're going to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Doesn't it make sense that we're going to start with us? Lord, help me to be holy. Help me to be holy even as you are holy. Help me to stop loving my sin. To stop loving the world and the things in the world. But help me to grow in, like, in uh, holiness, in Christ-likeness. So this is the first thing that we should pray for. And isn't it true that, that this is usually not the first thing that we pray for? When we pray, we usually cut right to the chase, get right to business. Lord, give me this and give me that and deliver me and heal me and comfort me. Do this for me. Now, the Lord wants us to pray that way eventually, but this is the doorstep. This is where we begin we begin not with ourselves and our needs, but we begin with God and his glory. And Jesus says that's important to keep that in mind when we pray. So then, in the fourth place in the Lord's prayer, Jesus wants us to pray that God's kingdom would be established in this world. Verse 10, your kingdom come. And like verse 9, this is uh, also a prayer request. Your kingdom come, 
can be phrased, may your kingdom come. Or like we sing in one of the songs that we often sing, let your kingdom come. That's the prayer request. God's kingdom is the reign of his grace in the hearts and lives of believers. To pray, let your kingdom come, is to ask that the gospel would spread to more and more people around the world and that believers, starting with us, would become more and more obedient to the authority of the king, the king of the kingdom. It makes no sense to pray, let your kingdom come, when we're not willing to be obedient to the king of that kingdom. And praying your kingdom come is also to look forward to and even hasten that great day when Christ will come again and consummate his kingdom on the new earth in which righteousness will dwell and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what it means to pray your kingdom come. And it's a prayer request that Matthew 6.33 would be fulfilled in our lives. So we're going to get to that eventually, but look at it now. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. These, these other things that pertain uh, to life in this world, they're important, God cares, God supplies, but they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is the kingdom of God. And that's hard for us to drive home because we're creatures of time. We live in this world, and it's so easy for us to get caught up in the things of this world, to be of this world, and to think that the kingdoms of men are the most important thing when they're not because they're all going to pass away. But the kingdom that has already been inaugurated with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and that is slowly and gradually but surely growing and spreading around the world and that will be consummated when Christ comes again and that will last forever. That is the kingdom that we're supposed to prioritize because that's the kingdom that God prioritizes and that's what we're supposed to pray for. Your kingdom come. Next, in the second half of verse 10, Jesus wants us to pray that God's commandments would be obeyed. That God's commandments would be obeyed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will here means his will 
expressed in his commandments. This doesn't refer to God's uh, sovereign will by which he works out everything. He, uh, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We're, we're not praying for that. God doesn't need us for that. We're praying for his, um, what theologians call his prescriptive will, his will expressed in his commandments, his law. And here we pray that God's commandments would be obeyed as perfectly, speedily, and consistently as they are by the angels in heaven. Your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So think about the angels, the holy angels, God's messengers. And when God commands his angels to do something, maybe to come into this world on a special mission, I promise you that the angels in heaven don't sit around and think to themselves, well, okay, that's the will of God, but I'm not quite ready to obey. I don't like that commandment. Or I have something else that I'd rather do first. Or that's not fair. Or, whoa, man, I almost tipped over the untippable cup. <laughs> Who is God to give me a commandment like this? The angels don't respond that way, but they, they immediately, they willingly and, and always, instantly obey God's will. And that's the essence of this prayer request. And obviously, like the other prayer requests in the Lord's Prayer, this includes our own obedience. How can we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven out there. Oh, our, our nation, this world is so evil and wicked and people don't obey your will. Cause your will to be obeyed out there. It's part of it. But it starts at home. It starts in our own hearts. Lord, help me to be obedient. Help me to do your will as it is in heaven. And yes, Lord, cause your gospel to spread across this nation. Send revival in this nation. Stir up an interest in the word of God among your people. Cause Christians to proclaim the message of repentance toward God and faith faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, so that this nation would be transformed, so that your will would be done. That's a good prayer. That's a Christ-honoring, patriotic prayer. And this is the point of our salvation, after all. The Apostle Peter wrote that we have been saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. We have not been saved so that we get a get-out-of-jail-free card, 
so that all of our sins would be forgiven and then we can live our lives in total disobedience to God. But we have been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. And that's reflected in the Lord's prayer. Moving on to verse 11. Jesus wants us to pray that God would supply our daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And here we acknowledge our total dependence on God. There is nothing that we will ever have that has not been given to us by God. All that we have, we have received as a gift from God. And here's our instinct. Our instinct is to say, well, what I have is because I'm so smart and I'm so industrious and I'm such a hard worker. God says, well, you might be those things, but those are all gifts from me. He's the father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from above from the father of lights. In him we, li we live and move and have our being. And so even when we take God for granted, even when we put way more confidence in ourselves than we should, even in those moments, we are totally dependent on God. And it's honoring to God when we actually express that dependence. When we say specifically, Give us this day our daily bread. There is nothing that we need that God cannot supply. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4 and verse 19, and, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is the God who provides but he wants us to ask. Number seven, Jesus wants us to pray that God would forgive us as we forgive others. So notice verse 12. <clears throat> God, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. That word debt is um, a really important word. Uh, when Luke gives his version of the Lord's Prayer, maybe, maybe it was on another occasion, we don't know exactly, but Luke uses the word that's translated trespasses, and um, Matthew's going to go on and use that word trespasses in verses 14 and 15, but in verse 12, he's very specific to use the word debt. And it's an important reminder. So when we trespass, that is, we, we cross the line, we violate God's commandments, 
we sin against him, there is a debt that's accrued. And that debt has to do with the judgment of God. It has to do with eternal death because the wages of sin is death. And God punishes sin. That's all bound up in that word debt. There is this debt, this mountain of debt that each one of us owes. That's the bad news. Our sin. The good news is what God in Jesus Christ has done to remedy that. What God has done in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay our debt. Here's just one example passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In Jesus, we have redemption. And that means the payment of our debt. We have redemption in Christ through his blood. That refers to his death. It doesn't mean that there was anything magic about the chemistry of Jesus' blood. His blood is uh, imagery to refer to his death. We have the payment of our debt through the death of Jesus. He died on the cross as my substitute as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including my sin. He came to pay my debt, the debt of all of God's people in full. Amen. So that when Jesus was dying on the cross and about ready to breathe his last breath, he said, it is finished, done paid in full. So in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. This is a gift of God's grace. God does not reward good people with salvation, but he saves bad people, sinners, hell-deserving sinners. He redeems us by the blood of Christ according to the riches of his grace. It's a message about what God has done, not what we do. And then, every day as believers, we depend on Christ's redemption. So the Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins... As believers, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our debt has been paid once and for all, but we still sin as believers. And even though we don't lose our salvation and God condemns us, when we're trusting in Christ because of our ongoing remaining sin, there's always that distance between us and God that results from our sin. And so we always need forgiveness because of our sin. 
<coughs> pardon me, even as believers. And so that prayer from 1 John 1, 9, this, this confession of sin, it's all based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always there for us. Forgive us our debts. But then Jesus follows this up with a warning. Verses 14 and 15. We're going to come back to verse 13. But uh, verses 14 and 15 are Christ's warning on uh, this particular prayer request in verse 12. So he says there, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a warning. And Jesus actually makes us pray, if you will. He, he puts these words into our mouths. Lord, forgive me as I forgive others. Implication, if I don't forgive others, I have no standing, no ground to be asking you to forgive me. J.C. Ryle, the uh, Anglican leader from the 1800s, wrote this about this particular prayer request. We must not expect our prayers for forgiveness to be heard if we pray with malice and spite in our hearts toward others. To pray in such a frame of mind is mere formality and hypocrisy. It is even worse than hypocrisy. It is as much as saying, do not forgive me at all. Our prayer is nothing without charity. We must not expect to be forgiven if we cannot forgive. And that's so true. And that's what Jesus warns us about. So Jesus wants us to pray that God would forgive us as we forgive others. And then finally, Jesus wants us to pray that God would lead us away from temptation and deliver us from evil. That's verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This doesn't mean that God himself tempts us. Uh, God himself cannot be tempted and he doesn't tempt anybody, James tells us in James chapter 1. But this is an acknowledgement of our dependence on God once again. It's an, it's an acknowledgement that God directs our steps. It's an acknowledgement of the providence of God. And basically, what this prayer request amounts to is, in the words of uh, commentator Craig Blomberg, don't let us succumb to temptation or don't abandon us to temptation. We will encounter temptation. 
We're dependent on God to help us to not succumb, to not abandon us to temptation. The Apostle Paul uh, elaborated on this prayer request. This is a pretty familiar verse, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And when we pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, it's also an acknowledgement of the evil that still remains in our own hearts. We sing in that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and like the third stanza, I think. And I appreciate this stanza, these words. We sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And that's so true. If we're honest with ourselves, we are prone to wander. We're prone to be attracted to temptation, to just fall headlong into it, to immerse ourselves into sin. And so it's an appropriate thing to pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You'll notice that in uh, the text of the ESV, it stops there. Um, it's a long discussion, a much longer discussion to explain why that is. Um, basically, the earliest manuscripts, which if, if you believe the earliest manuscripts are the best manuscripts, then they end there, and then it's later manuscripts, uh, centuries down the line, where the familiar ending to the Lord's prayer appear, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. It's not that those words are wrong or unbiblical. Those words are very biblical. They, they express biblical truth. They express a good prayer request. Um, it's just that according to the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, those particular words aren't right here in this place in Matthew's gospel, but it's a good thing to pray for sure. But we are going to stop there. And in conclusion, remember we started talking about Father's Day. This is a summary, the Lord's Prayer. This is a summary of what's important, not just to Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, but to our Father in heaven. These are God's priorities spelled out in the Lord's prayer. And it's also a summary of what our priorities should be if we would be godly fathers ourselves. And so more than just a step-by-step -step cookbook approach to being fathers, which there's a place for that kind of instruction. The lesson from the Lord's Prayer is that we need these truths, these priorities in our hearts 
so that it comes out of our mouths as we pray to God. We need these principles, these kingdom realities to be in our lives and that, that is what will make us the best fathers because then we'll be like the ultimate father, our father who is in heaven.